Hello, it's 22nd of March 2020 and this is episode 135 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the series. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? My week hasn't been very Star Wars filled. The last week for me has been quite dramatic because I had a um, medical emergency where um, it is a long story, so I won't go into the whole story. But basically, I got something in my eye and it meant I had to go to hospital to get the thing out of my eye so I could see again. And I was in a lot of pain and I couldn't see for a few days. I'm so, sorry. Oh, no, don't worry. It's okay. And I, I'm touch wood 100% better now. So, um, yeah, I'm just very grateful for the great health care I received from the amazing NHS. So, thank you to them and long may they last. My most stalsy memory of the last week is me barely being able to see and Kirsty messaging me to be like, if you're up to it, they've just released the Ben Solo rollout short and like strain in my eyes to try oh. and watch this little rolling ball of Ben Solo and it feeling worth it despite the pain. <laughs> You rallied for yeah, baby Ben. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was totally worth it. I would rally for no one else to that degree. Um, yeah, no, so that was good. Um, how about you, Kirsty? Um, kind of. Well, obviously without the medical emergency, thankfully. Um, but pretty much the same in terms of what I've been focusing on with Star Wars. We've had these little shorts. We've had Galaxy of Adventures returning, and then watching the the Rise of Skywalker documentary as well, so that we're ready to talk about that together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's kind of it. Uh, focus has been elsewhere this week. We're obviously not going to dwell on what's going on in the real world because people are here to listen to us talk about Star Wars and hopefully we can help people take their minds off what's going on mm. uh, for an hour or two. But just hope that everyone's staying safe. Like to mirror what Kirsty said, obviously everyone is going through a tough time right now. The whole world needs to come together um, to try and fight this awful virus. And essentially the way we're going to fight it is by staying at home um, and keeping ourselves entertained. So, yeah, we hope that we can entertain you for at least a couple of hours and help take your mind off things. Um, And, yeah, even if nothing else, we know we entertain ourselves. That's something. (laughs) If that. (laughs) Hey, I'm entertained. Oh, oh my god um but yeah just to start off with a brief anecdote because i promised this on twitter and there might be like two people who <laughs> want to hear this um but the treatment for when you have something in your eyes is that they measure careful for people who are squeamish oh yeah be too War- tr- trigger warning for people who are squeamish um so they basically put this little strip in your eye to measure the acidity of your eye and the acidity of my eye was too high So what they do when they need to reduce the acidity in your eyes is they need to wash them out. I did not know what this meant. Um, And I was basically left by the nurse in this small white room. (laughs) They went away and they came back in with this device, like a big metal stalk on wheels, which is why I have the comparison to the torture device in the original Star Wars film. And from the metal stand on wheels, there are affixed two bags of water, big bags of water. And from the end of each bag of water, there comes a tube of water. And at the end of each tube, there's like a contact lens. 
and they stick the contact lenses in your eyes. Oh God. And then they pump each eye full of the bag of water. And Kirsty, it was absolutely horrifying. I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time even hearing about this. I can't even imagine what that was like going through. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, it was 100% worth doing because, yeah, better. But, oh my God, it's literally the worst thing <laughs> Well, for like that I've been through medically, um, it was very, very bad. Um, but yeah, now I can think about it in comparison to Star Wars torture drawings. <laughs> there's always a parallel. Exactly, there's always a parallel. This is why I love Star Wars, because it hopes, yeah. helps me cope with the agony of everyday existence. Yeah, because at least I could be like, well, I didn't die in childbirth, so <laughs> I'm luckier than Padme. Yeah, no, exactly. It's just so relatable at every turn. Like, yeah. Oh, Star Wars can be depressing. <laughs> yeah, it can. Yeah, like I probably shouldn't be like finding something like relatable in the torture droid scene, but I do. <laughs> so yeah, sorry guys, I hope I didn't freak anyone out too much. <laughs> I promise it's fine. And the nurse was very kind, although obviously they've seen this many times before. So you're there like freaking out, and they're like, "It's okay, you'll be alright. We'll only take half an hour." <laughs> <laughs> the longest half an hour of your life. Yes. Exactly. Mm. I'm like, oh my god. Okay, so let's move into the news. <laughs> um, it's a loose definition of news because it's more some really adorable animated shorts have come out on YouTube and we just briefly want to talk about them. So the first one, and easily the most important, is Kirsty, you do the honours, explain what it is. It's Baby Ben Solo as a little roundy BB-8 style character. I don't know if people have seen these already because I think there's a, a there's a Ray one, um, but they came out a while ago. I feel like they were out before the Rise of Skywalker, and then because they'd advertised, there was like this mysterious character that we we all figured was Baby Ben Solo because he was like following Han around and he kind of had a similar outfit on. It was like that's got to be Baby Ben, right? But they didn't confirm it. Um, and people have been kind of bugging Matt Martin on Twitter ever since like are we getting the baby Ben short still because after the Rise of Skywalker the character's dead it's like are they still going to bring out stuff like this but they did um, and it was really sweet to see and he's now my profile picture on Twitter Aww. yeah no he's really cute and he's got a really cute little voice so the thing is in these shorts they don't actually talk there's no dialogue but there's like little emoti noises so it's like hee 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 <laughs> yeah he has a little chuckle yeah and it's just precious um and yeah it all seems very like true to canon which i appreciate um because yeah you don't necessarily expect that from a short of this nature so it appears to show the period in Ben Solo's life when he, Mummy and Daddy were still living on Hosnian Prime because they're living in some sort of high-rise building and like Daddy Han Solo is constantly like sneaking out to go off on smuggling adventures because hmm. he apparently just can't resist that call of the wild. <laughs> and yeah, little Ben just wants to be like Dad and just keeps following him everywhere. And yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking like that. At least we've now got to see Ben Solo flying the Falcon, because I was hoping to see that in the movies at some point. <laughs> Hopefully someone will render that in like a photorealistic way, because <laughs> I'm going to guess that the child being represented by that little rolling ball is probably like five or six or something. He seems really little. And yeah, I want to see an actual like tiny child, Ben Solo, driving the Falcon. That'd be good. 
I've seen a lot of fan art already. People were really on the ball for that. Good. <laughs> on the ball. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> on the ball. Sorry. I think people were really excited for this. So yeah, there's just, there's parts of this, like, I, I don't know whether it counts as canon or whatever, but like Han actually like ties him up to stop him getting into trouble. Like that, that is a very Han Solo thing to do, I guess. Yeah. But, <laughs> but he does leave toys in front of him. So he's not How all g- bad. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! It is absolutely bonkers. Um, like no, actually, no, it's not absolutely bonkers. What am I saying? Um, yeah, it's just a really cute little show, and I really look forward to seeing the conclusion because at the this is basically a cliffhanger where they leave part one, and yeah, you see Han Solo in a situation of peril, and I imagine little baby Ben will help him. Yeah. Baby Ben to the rescue. Exactly. Yeah, like, clearly we just need all the Baby Ben content. That will heal the world, make everyone social distance effectively. It definitely made me feel better this week. So yeah. I thank them for that. It was really nice. It was a nice little pick-me-up. Yeah, so that was lovely. And yeah, then just briefly to acknowledge it, we also have a bunch of new Galaxy of Adventures shorts, also on the Star Wars Kids YouTube channel. And these are those really cool animated shorts where they're sort of like anime style. And they're usually just like introductions to characters or like concepts and styles um, with really, really neat animation. So yeah, it's like very much a visual experience. And you've seen the um, Kylo Ren episode of this, haven't you, Kirsty? That is the only one I've managed to watch so far. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I always like these shorts. Um, I like the way that they draw the parallels between the characters of Kylo and Darth Vader. Um, I, I like the fact that they have Prince Zuko narrating them. <laughs> I think that's especially apt for a character like Kylo. Yeah, I've, I just really like the style of them. Yeah, I do find the voiceover a bit funny because it's just always that exact same tone. And it's like, in a galaxy of adventures, Kylo Ren is like Darth Vader. <laughs> and yeah it's obviously not quite like that but yeah it's just something about the tone that I find funny but it's obviously to be appealing to kids and stuff so it makes sense mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah I'm not sure what else to expect from this series how long they're going to kind of keep it going or if they're going to go into like the story specifically around the rise of Skywalker and kind of the end point because as far as I can remember I only watched it once but you didn't get any like redeemed Ben in this no, one right very now, much so. not yeah like and there have been like very brief flashes of stuff from the rise of skywalker but it's usually like very early stuff like leia watching ray in the woods as she trains right yeah so, so yeah maybe maybe that'll come eventually yeah that'd be good i'd be super psyched for a the ray and ben romance galaxy of adventures episode ah, won't hold my breath for that one yeah <laughs> same but it would be nice. <laughs> it would, yeah. <laughs> so right, then we'll move on to the main thrust of this episode, um, which is going to be the behind-the-scenes documentary um, for The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, the documentary is called The Skywalker Legacy. And yeah, it's just this really, really thorough, so it's two hours long, <laughs> um, look at the movie. Um, and yeah, there's got some really great stuff in it. Like I absolutely loved a lot of the insights into how they created certain scenes and all the craftsmanship that went into stuff. And yeah, there's lots of interesting comments and stuff that we're going to talk about um, in varying ways because some of them are going to be like, oh, how nice. And others are going to be like, ah. 
Um, so yeah, here we are. What were your overall impressions of this documentary, Kirsty? First of all, especially like compared to the previous making of documentaries we've had. I guess first of all, it was kind of a nice surprise to get it early because they decided to release the the movie early on digital because of everything that's happening in the world right now. So that was that was a nice surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because of the name of the documentary, um, and I'd only heard about the name in the days leading up to it because I, I think at first we hadn't even heard that there was going to be a documentary attached because I know there was discussion about the lack of a commentary on the Blu-ray, the fact that we weren't going to get any deleted scenes and we I don't think we knew about the documentary at first either. So once we did and we heard the name, I started having then like a certain level of expectation of what it might be about because that name, uh, to me, it says something, right? So I thought it would be kind of about the intentionality behind not just The Rise of Skywalker, not even just the sequel trilogy, but how those movies and stories fit into the overall Skywalker myth kind of across the nine movies and the four decades. Yeah. So I thought we'd get something that like tracks from Anakin leaving Shmi as he journeys to become a Jedi to Rey's story. And that's not what this is. So it's 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 not like that's a bad thing. It's just that the name didn't quite line up for me because mm-hmm. it's kind of more about this movie. It's like a making of of The Rise of Skywalker, which is interesting in its own right. But um, the name just didn't quite line up for me. For what it is, it is enjoyable. And you get a really cool look at how some of the scenes are done. What goes into really impressive creature design... I always love hearing from Neil Scanlon and seeing like Victoria Mahoney on location filming. That was really cool. But it's it's not big picture stuff. So there, there aren't many like grand statements about what this movie itself is trying to say. Mm. So in that respect, I can't help but compare it to the director and the Jedi, which was pretty clear and focused on what Ryan wanted to say with the characters and the story as a whole. Uh, but I guess in a way that's kind of reflective of how I feel about the Rise of Skywalker itself because I'm constantly wondering why <laughs> and, and what <laughs> is Why? Ending. Why? Well, not not just in that sense, like a frustration with it, but literally like what is JJ trying to say? And mm. even after watching this two-hour documentary and hearing the things that he says here and the things that Chris Terrio says, I'm still not quite sure. <laughs> and I'm not sure if even they know, so... Yeah, no, so I think what they were going for with the Skywalker legacy was this legacy of the original trilogy. And even more specifically, I think the original Star Wars, because so much of it is about that film specifically. Um, And yeah, I don't think it was really looking at the mythological significance of the story um, or like how it's built certain themes or anything. It was very much more, there's this amazing series of films from the 70s and 80s and they established all these precedents and this visual language and here's how we honored that in this new film yeah i mean i almost lost count of how many times people would say a version of this is like the thing you see in a new hope yeah well this is like you see in star wars yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> which i think is almost the point of a lot of things yeah very much um and really it just reinforced that understanding of the rise of Skywalker is that's what that movie is about in large part you know it's about like re-establishing things as they were in that film and having callbacks and harkening back to 
those like old themes and visuals and characters and all that sort of stuff like with everything else being subordinate to them um and it was kind of sad to be honest to have that so conveyed so strongly because i think in my heart of hearts i knew that's what they they had been doing um but yeah to hear it coming from people's mouths so incredibly frequently was a bit depressing <laughs> it's like wow yeah that really is what they were doing isn't it so and yeah we've spoken about this in our initial reaction to the film but our main love for the sequel trilogy is the new stuff in it you know we really love the new characters and the new generation and the reason why we're upset with the rise of skywalker is because we feel like that new generation were essentially shortchanged in service of this nostalgia and yeah that is very much what comes through in the documentary it does but then there are also points of where i'm genuinely confused about what the true intent was and whether there was like a a defining overarching vision because i don't feel like there is one reflected in the final film but that might also be a result of kind of playing around with things in in post but um there's a point where they're showing Daisy and Oscar filming that like bickering scene when he gets back from the Falcon that's on fire and everything. Um, JJ saying over them, it's the first movie that ostensibly this new generation had to carry on their own. I find that fascinating because is he being genuine there? Was that really his intent? Because to me, he failed spectacularly. Mm so much that i could not tell from this movie that that was what he was trying to do like I, I genuinely did not think that that was his goal i thought his goal was to actually echo the original trilogy in many ways and they do talk about that as the intent throughout the documentary so again things seem kind of muddled and i would genuinely like to hear more from jj on how he thought the choices they made with the story and these character arcs allowed the characters to stand on their own apart from the older characters because it just seems like it is really constrained, as you say, by that existing visual language of Star Wars. And um, that in itself, I guess, is saying something about the myth and the cyclical nature. And they kind of come back to that when you get to the end, when they're filming on Tatooine, they're talking about the cycles of Star Wars and how things kind of come full circle and Rey is kind of back to her beginning. And I just want to know to what end what's what are you saying with that and i just don't think they really give us an answer yeah and yeah like you i kind of sense it's because they don't know what the answer is um yeah which is a bit of a bummer but um well and i i know we sound like we're on a bit of a downer with it but there are parts of the documentary that are really great we'll go into them um i have a lot of respect for a lot of people who worked on this because there's amazing work people are incredibly talented um, a lot of it is like behind the scenes stuff and that's kind of the focus on a lot of the like, I think a real strength of the movie is in the little details of like how things look um, the creature work the puppeteering um, but, uh, and I think as a result of that that's a big focus of the documentary and not so much the character arcs I was kind of shocked to see so little focus on the actual story of the characters it's very much about the plot and then kind of the background details yeah like i'd like, say I the only characters where they even like in a minor way talk about them in any depth and try to entertain like their motivations and emotions is all about rain kylo ren nobody else gets 
like as much of a sentence, really. Yeah, you don't get a single statement from JJ or Chris Terrio about Finn in, in, in a meaningful way. Yeah. So you get John Boyega talking about what what it was like starting with The Force Awakens versus where they are now. Um, especially because, you know, they started out that movie, they were shooting in Abu Dhabi in the desert and he's taking off his stormtrooper gear and everything. And then by this film, we'll get to it, but there are some interesting statements from John towards the end about what he thinks is going on with the stormtrooper, like, confrontation towards the end when they're on Exegol. Do you remember that? Yes. It's interesting because I don't really feel like that's what came across in the final product. And again, I'm wondering if that was stuff that was kind of just dropped or there was like a miscommunication between John and the writers in terms of what the intent was I'm not quite clear but yeah because since the movie's come out I hate to say it but you have sensed a certain um, cynicism from John Baker in terms of how he's referred to Star Wars on his Twitter and social media Um, and yeah, I think if there is perhaps a situation where he felt misled or he filmed stuff that he felt was really important for his character that was subsequently cut, I think that would be upsetting. And I think that would leave you feeling quite cynical and bitter about the whole thing. So, yeah, like it's the sort of thing where you get these little glimpses and your mind is working over time trying to figure out, oh, so is perhaps this the case? But because it is just these little snatches and you don't have the full context, it's difficult to draw firm conclusions. Exactly. I don't think we're going to get full answers on stuff like that unless in decades to come there's like a tell-all because mm. like this kind of was the chance to kind of see how everything t- came together. And um, the way that... I, I said it earlier, like comparing to something like The Director and the Jedi where there's... Um, it's it's an enjoyable watch in and of itself because there's like a point of view being put forward. There's like a cohesiveness to it. Um, there's not so much here. It's kind of like you're just following them as they make the movie and you're jumping from plot point to plot point and there's, no, uh, there's not much of an overarching message. So yeah, I still feel like there's lots of questions, but... I really don't want to spill over into conspiracy theory, which I know is tempting for people to do. But like you say, you're basing it on a lot of assumptions about people we don't know behaving in ways that we're not sure why. And I really don't want to like start crafting my own fiction around that. Like that's not healthy and you're not going to get any answers that way. So it's kind of unless people come forward and tell us more about the, the behind the scenes of this movie, then, you know, there's we just don't know. So, yeah. I'd like to be positive for a change <laughs> um, and like talk about that amazing Maz puppet because I think we knew in advance of this documentary that they'd actually used a practical Maz puppet in this movie but it was just so cool to see it in the b-roll footage in this documentary mm-hmm. like yeah just the detail and the craftsmanship that went into making that thing are so cool like all these props and stuff it really makes me hope that one day we get a big like exhibition of all the stuff they created because yeah it's got to be kept somewhere you know i know they destroy the sets but you'd think that they'd keep the um puppets and the animatronics oh definitely yeah is there a statement when they show because they show it but they're talking about something else at the time i think yeah they talk is there a point where they talk about why they made that choice no i don't think there is so you glimpse the maz puppet but you never really see it as like the focal point in docu- in the documentary, which is a shame, really, because 
yeah but I guess at the same time the documentary is covering a hell of a lot of ground so I feel like there's so much stuff that just doesn't even get acknowledged in the documentary and yeah I think that's understandable because yeah you could probably make a five-hour documentary out of everything that happened yeah and is we don't see like Lupita recording lines or anything to go with it so it is kind of disconnected from her own performance but that's not really what comes across in the movie the the puppet is really impressive but again it's like well I would have liked to know why they made that choice yeah I'd say they do a much better job and they're much more thorough at talking about Babu Frick um, and going into that whole process of um, yeah. how the actress worked with the puppet and stuff, which I thought was really cool because I love Shirley Henderson. Yeah, if you have Shirley there on set doing the voice kind of live, why why didn't we have the same for Lupita? That would have been really cool to see. Yeah, the only thing I can imagine for Lupita is I think she's so busy and so in demand now. I don't see her actually having been there when they were filming. My bet would be she did like half a day in a recording booth. <laughs> And that was it for her work on the movie. I don't think mm. she would have been as involved as she was for The Force Awakens. Okay. Do you want to talk about the opening? Of the documentary? Oh, yeah. No, and they start with um, all the like behind-the-scenes footage, right? Of um, the original trilogy. Yeah, so I love the way it opens with the fans watching them film the barge scene. Yes. Um, Return of the Jedi because you have that guy actually wondering what the story is going to look like after nine <laughs> movies because of course that was that was supposedly George's intent from the beginning but God knows because things have always kind of moved around and he said things were done after Revenge of the Sith as well and of course they weren't um, and then they kind of transition into George talking about how he always thought of it as a modern fairy tale and it's just kind of a nice setting of the scene and that's kind of where I thought things were going to be for the documentary as a whole that it was going to be kind of like about George's overall vision for the Skywalker story what he was trying to say with them um but interestingly there's there's really not anything on Anakin mm. you know so yeah. that that's again something I, I I probably sound like I'm being negative but I'm not I'm just genuinely surprised that in a documentary about the Skywalker legacy and even about the rise of Skywalker where you see Darth Vader's helmet and all this, you you don't have anything substantial about Anakin as the patriarch of this family. Mm. Yeah, no, it feels like a bit of a missed opportunity. Um, not even for the documentary, but like for Rise of Skywalker really, which I think is a shame. I think it just kind of shows JJ's a perspective on what Star Wars is and it is very much about Luke. Yes. Like that that's his his uh, entry point for Star Wars because you know if you think about it as this like generational myth it's been told over decades you know a, a lot of fans these days their entry point will be the Phantom Menace and of course newer fans their entry point will be the Force Awakens or the Clone Wars or whatever but the emphasis on this documentary is very much Oh, of course, everyone thinks about Tatooine. And yet again, come back, coming back to that opening with the fans talking about it, they're like, wow, we're on Tatooine. We're all here right now. And that you can tell. And even when Chris Dario comes on screen and he talks about, I come to Star Wars as a fan, it's like that. Yeah, you do, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it, it sums it up. Yeah, and it just underlines how there's many different types of fans <laughs> with different priorities. <laughs> when it comes to stars 
in a way it's helping me kind of come to terms with why the movie didn't work for me because mm. I just it works for them so if JJ and Chris Terrio are happy with this movie and that's their take on Star Wars then it's just not mine and that's just why it wasn't for me because people love Star Wars for all different reasons they come to it from all different perspectives it really depends on the age you were when you got into it and what the focus of the story was at that time and for them it's all about Tatooine and Luke so that's why this documentary is focused on that yeah like one of the most telling quotes for me in the whole documentary was and I'm not even sure who said it to be honest it might have been um, Michael Kaplan was um JJ wanted Kylo Ren to have the helmet <laughs> um which yeah like no shit he did but I get the impression that JJ was just like I want the helmet back and he didn't think about that in terms of story and so it was like left up to the creative team to come up with a rationale for in sort of like vaguely character terms for why that would happen for JJ mm-hmm. again it's like that aesthetic choice and that choice of harkening back to Vader and keeping that theme going and yeah like again JJ's got to do what he's got to do you know he's the director so ultimately he has the say to make the creative decisions but yeah it's just reasoning that does not correspond to my own priorities when it comes to storytelling and stuff yeah i mean another part that kind of fits in with that is when they're focusing on um the leia part and the choice to make her a former jedi mm. um you have michelle rejwan and they show the footage from the the last jedi of them like leaving crate on the falcon um Michelle Rajwan points out that Leia says at the end of The Last Jedi, we have everything we need. Um, and they tie that in with Return of the Jedi, there is another. It's like, okay, that's talking about Leia and we wanted to explore that. But I get the sense it's almost like a way of explaining why Leia was able to use the Force in The Last Jedi. Because mm. it has to be explained, apparently. Yeah, And kind of, again, when she says that in the documentary, it's kind of my it kind of points to my problem with some of the choices in the writing because it's almost depressingly literal. <laughs> like yes. when Leia says we have everything we need to Ray, that doesn't have to be, don't worry, I'll train you now that Luke's not here. And we have to explain how I'm strong in the force. And then it'll justify how you're strong in the force <laughs> in the next movie, because you'll have gone through all of this training. <laughs> to me, that line is kind of just intended as a continuation of what Yoda said to Luke, like that Ray already possesses everything that she needs she doesn't need the text so again the fact that they even like bring out the text and show that ray has been studying the books it's like before the movie came out and i know i'm getting on a bit of a rant here but jj was kind of saying we've really honored what ryan did with the last jedi and i think what he means by that is that they've picked up certain plot points and continued them on to their own ends but thematically it really misses the point. Yeah. In my in my opinion. I know for other people it lines up and that's great. If this worked for you, that's awesome. I wish it did for me. But it's like, yeah, things do line up in terms of you took certain plot points and carried them through. But in terms of like understanding why Ryan made certain choices. Um, and I could be wrong. It could be my reading that doesn't line up. But in terms of what I've understood from Ryan, what he talked about in his commentary and kind of in interviews afterwards a lot of things aren't meant to be taken quite so literally yeah it's like it's like ray's cave scene because i've seen a lot of people since the the novelization came out and kind of confirmed that ray's dad is actually a clone of palpatine i've seen people even pointing to that scene 
where she sees the endless versions of herself and they're like oh that's why that's an explanation for why ryan did that it's because she's seeing clones of herself and i'm like oh no yeah i think jj and terrio probably did think along those lines no oh, I, just, I don't even know though because sorry i know i'm giving novelization spoilers now it's fine don't if worry. people haven't seen them you know yeah that maria's dad is actually not technically palpatine's child he's a clone of him and he's described as a failed clone because presumably he didn't have the force but ray does as his daughter um i just everything is reduced to like the most literal obvious meaning and uh, i just think that's kind of a shame yeah it's like i feel like that's further exemplified by this quote from terrio that i'd like to bring out and this is a quote from the documentary It's clear that they have a connection, talking about Ray and Kylo, that they understand each other, that they can literally read each other's minds. They're made uncomfortable by it, yet they're both drawn to each other. Episode 8 furthered it by introducing the idea of a force connection, and I think what we wanted to do was complicate that, saying actually their connection was deeper than that. We began talking about them as a mythic concept, which is in Joseph Campbell, the mythic dyad. They're two parts of the same whole. And... I feel like is ironic because he says that they wanted to complicate what Ryan established in episode 8 but if anything I feel like they make it more reductive and simple because mm-hmm. it's like you're connected because your granddad's had this relationship a long time ago Woo! and yeah it sort of like makes it I'm trying to think of the right way of saying it it makes it feel like baser somehow you know, in like not in a good way. Like it takes something that was very spiritual and yeah, like spiritual in the best way, and just like it's destiny that these people are drawn together. They're like soulmates in the force. You know, all that sort of stuff. And it's like, well, once upon a time, Ray's granddad was the mentor to Kylo's granddad, so therefore they're connected. And yeah, that's the opposite of complicating the dynamic to me. That's like a way of making it yeah more basic bitch <laughs> yeah i think it is i i'm on on your side there i i do agree um but from their perspective they are complicating it and they're going deeper in terms of explaining things so i guess it's just your perspective like whether an explanation for something is like a demystification in a good way or a bad way um and i i think it really does come down to kind of what kind of star wars fan you are um, when Terrio does bring up the dyad and he says that kind of, oh, it's in Joseph Campbell, that really frustrated me because yes, technically, Joseph Campbell has referenced dyad in terms of marriage as a social structure and the implications of that, of course, from Jung's anima and animus, which we've talked endlessly about. Um, but it's not really the point. It's kind of this label that could have been anything and I'm still kind of not clear on why he picks that out as like oh we chose to call it the dyad because that's from Joseph Campbell it's like you you could have called it anything and the relationship between Ray and Kylo was that way from the beginning um and I wish they kind of focused on that because Ryan's talked about that that he noticed these things in their dynamic from The Force Awakens especially that interrogation scene and he drew them out and developed them into this force bond um, but I don't know why you need to put a label on it 
it's it's complicated because I know some people really love the dyad concept, but I'm not sure it's even clear what the dyad is in in a Star Wars sense. So, you know, when Joseph Campbell talks about it in the hero's journey, he's saying, um, well, I'll, I'll just read out. My notion of marriage is that if marriage isn't a first priority in your life, you're not married. It's an extremely important decision, that of marriage, because it does amount to and require a yielding, and the yielding has to be total to now being a member of a dyad and acting in relation to that tunus. So he's talking about people sacrificing to a relationship, that if you want something to succeed, it's the most, you have to defer to that, um, and kind of the sum is greater than the parts. So you can see that in a sense, like, they both sacrifice for the sake of the other and then come together. But I just don't think that that's something that Terrio explores here. He he breezes past it, you know, like, oh, it's in Joseph Campbell. It's like, well, what about people who don't know about that concept? Maybe you should elaborate that on that a bit more. Yeah, I feel like it's tricky, isn't it? Because we obviously don't know, like, exactly how much research and like thought went into the craftsmanship of all this stuff. Because as it's presented in the documentary, it does feel like a bit of an empty soundbite. Like, it's just like name-checking Joseph Campbell, because, yeah, Joseph Campbell is something that is a source that George Lucas relied on a lot, so therefore it's important. It's hard, because, yeah, a lot of the stuff that comes from Terrio's mouth in this documentary is various degrees of enraging. Well, it's like there's just not much reflection on why choices are made. Like, yeah. so he calls, he talks about them being soulmates in the Force, and how, or oh, what if your enemy in the Force is your soulmate? Like, that's the conflict for Rey. And again, that's something that's quite frustrating for us as fans because when the the movie came out and it was revealed that she was actually the daughter of Palpatine and that was kind of going to be a, a a focus for her of the climax, we were like, well, isn't the conflict of feeling drawn to her enemy enough? Shouldn't that be the focus of the story? And it both is and isn't, and that's what gets muddled in yeah. this movie. Um, and it's frustrating because there's stuff here that's like validating in a sense that we finally get them talking about them as soulmates but it's again kind of breezed past um and it really to me should be like a main focus of the story Mm. yeah it just reminded me watching it of how frustrating it is to watch the movie because you have all this great stuff like there's aspects to the Rain Kyler relationship in the movie that are absolutely fantastic and I love them you know like Ray wounding Kylo then healing him like everything that happens after Kylo gets out of the pit prior to Kylo dying you know like I love all that stuff and I think that's really well executed and moving it's just you always get the sense that everything in like that whole part of the story is subordinated to these greater forces as they're perceived by the creative team um and yeah it's just restrained because it's like there's the quote from michelle rejoin where she says one of the surprises and delights Mm. for me personally is seeing adam get to play ben in this film the great tragedy is that we don't get him for very long in this story but when you do you feel the potential of the person he could have been and i feel like that's treating that whole Ben Solo character as just this cute little extra, you know, this sort of like seasoning on the main meal rather than like the culmination of the story. And for me, that is like the culmination of the story from a certain point of view. And yeah, I just, I'm not sure the creative team saw it that way. 
and yeah it's just a bummer it is and i think it kind of comes back to what we've been saying about them having to defer overall to the the weight of star wars um in a visual sense and having to oh quick okay yeah we've redeemed the bad guy now we need to leave and it's reflected in the final edit of the movie that you're not allowed to linger on this stuff you're not allowed to feel that tragedy as she refers to it um because they have to get to tatooine and you have to see luke and leia again and you have to bury the savers for some reason so (laughs) the actual story being told within the sequel trilogy gets lost Mm. it's a real shame yeah but yeah again i just for better or worse i do feel like this documentary reflects that because it does kind of breeze past these moments and there are some really great moments of adam driver and and daisy ridley talking about their characters relationships with each other yeah um but again it's not like the focus it's just like passing things do you have a quote there from adam yeah no there's lots of really great quotes from adam actually so let me see which one i should start with Oh, I guess the first part would be him and Eunice together, right? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a great double act. Him and Eunice. Uh, oh, my God. I love Eunice. Yes. She is a highlight of this documentary. Yeah. We need to give context for who, who <laughs> Eunice is. So Eunice is the stunt coordinator for the film. She's from Liverpool and she has an amazing accent. It's all people from Liverpool do. Um, and also, for anyone who's British, Eunice was a gladiator. Yes. And Kirsty, I've just learned today, is a bit of a gladiator super fan. Well, I was. Come on, Kirsty, I know you do a sideline podcast about gladiators. Don't hold it. <laughs> um, yeah. No, this this honestly made made my day, to be Aww. honest. So thank you for that nugget of information. You're welcome. She seemed familiar to me. Yeah. I was like, why does this woman seem so familiar? And it might have been the accent or whatever, but I was just like, okay, Eunice, she's a gladiator. Of course she's a gladiator. Yeah. Look at her. She's amazing. No, she's just a legend. And I looked her up and she's just had the most incredible career. She's like been a stunt double for loads of high profile actors. She was a stunt double for Angelina Jolie in the Lara Croft films, for example. So yeah, she goes way back. Um, And yeah, now she's working on Star Wars and it's really cool. I wonder if Daisy and John knew that she was a gladiator because... Oh my God. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder to start singing it. But they've been too little to remember it. I don't know. I mean, they're only a few years younger than us. Yeah. The, yeah, no, you're right. So we're still on the early 2000s. So yeah, they, they could remember it. Like, I, I really want that footage if there's that conversation between them. Hey, don't I know you? Oh my God, you're on gladiators. Uh, Blaze. Yeah. That was her name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, it's like, I love her, but Eunice is not much of like a gladiator name. <laughs> Introducing Eunice. <laughs> Blaze is definitely much more badass sounding. Um, yeah. But she can make Eunice sound badass. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm really impressed because she's, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Eunice, and she's the only UK contender to ever become a gladiator. Because, do you remember watching gladiators and how bloody hard it seemed for them to beat them yes <laughs> just like knocking them off the podium <laughs> i always just remember like actually playing it at home you know like on the sofa and like having to like try yeah. and knock each other off the sofa <laughs> <laughs> oh but she God. did it go yeah. eunice 
No, she's so amazing. It's incredible. I after the, we've finished recording, I think I'm gonna go on YouTube and find like an old episode <laughs> of Gladiators to watch. <laughs> that will heal yeah. the world. <laughs> but yeah, in this documentary, she's a real highlight because she's got such passion, enthusiasm, and I love the way she's just like you know that you can actually see her going through the motions of the scene with jj so there's the bit when uh daisy's training and she like jumps over that gap and she's like well what if we had a tree here and that would change the angle of her of her jump and it's just really cool to see her suggesting things like that and jj being like yeah that sounds great yeah she seems to have had like a lot of like creative contribution to the movie which is really fantastic and yeah the stuff of adam and eunice is amazing like here's eunice talking about adam there was no icebreaker with adam i actually love it even in rehearsals adam's in character i'll go i'll go adam you need to step out more it's closing your strength down he's like no i don't need to step out more kylo ren wouldn't do that And oh my god, it's just so wonderful. I would love to see like a whole just like you know they do like the mini documentaries and the like fifteen minutes. Just give me like a fifteen minute documentary where it's just purely following Eunice and Adam Driver having conversations. Uh, okay, I gotta say though, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine when people and they people do this a lot with Adam as Kylo. They like talk about how he stays in character on set, but he doesn't. Like, if he's having a conversation with you, as she she recounts there in that anecdote, if he's speaking to you about whether Kylo would do something or not, that means he's not being Kylo. He's yeah. Adam. He's just kind of staying in the mood so it's easier to slip back into the scene. I, I can see where she's coming from. So I think everyone else seems much more like that they're completely themselves. When well, that's not because it's easier filming. to be... If you're playing one of the heroes, it's easier to be closer to who you are as a person, sure. right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to maintain that intensity it's just one of these pet peeves because like i read a lot of adam driver interviews and people always reference him almost like as as a method actor and it's just not right yeah like that that's not what he's doing yeah he's so. not jared leto sending his co-stars like used condoms in the post thank god yeah like we actually have footage of him on set like smiling in the kylo costume yes so he, he he's like talking to people between takes and he's like grinning and like he's clearly not Kylo in those moments. So yeah. I do love the um, behind the scenes shots of him with that sort of like glove on his face. <laughs> Socklo. Socklo, yes. Socklo ran. <laughs> um, like because he does still look quite intense, you know, and he's just clearly concentrating, you know, and preparing for the scenes to come. Um, but yeah, it's just funny because he looks ridiculous. It's, it's like, like expectations versus reality yes. of the unmasking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what it would actually look like. Can you imagine if everything in The Force Awakens of the unmasking scene was the same, but he had that bloody sock on? <laughs> I think we need that. We need that version. Yes. <laughs> Creature in a mask. Sock in a mask. <laughs> but I, I, there are really nice statements here from, from Daisy and Adam about like their roles and how they've come to identify with these characters because you know he says like that when Eunice is talking about it first she's like he he wanted to do all of his stunts and I was kind of not believing that he would be capable of doing that but it turns out he really was um and he's saying the physicality of Kylo I'm very protective over I just really appreciate that because you're really not going to get that level of commitment to a franchise role like this from an actor of his caliber very often to be honest like it's pretty special so i'm always going to be grateful to have him in this role and this character 
Yeah, it just elevates it all so much. It's really awesome. Yeah, and <laughs> gotta say, bless Adam for still insisting that it's the character is the starting place, it's not the spectacle, because I think that this movie more than any other has challenged that notion. Yeah. <laughs> I think for him, it is still the case. And you can see that in the performance, like it's a real strength of the movie, the the interactions between those characters. So yeah. that's what I, I will take away from it as a real, that's the core of the movie. Yeah. And I definitely think Kylo was among the best served characters in this film. Obviously not necessarily well served, but given what everyone else got. I think a lot of it is down to their performances as well. Yeah. Because, you know, again, like that whole sequence of Ben and we see them filming that stuff. And I don't, I don't have the quotes of him talking about it as they're showing that stuff, but he did say some really great things about yeah. Ben. And uh, do you have them to hand? Yeah, I, I do have those quotes. Um, yeah, there's lots of quotes from Adam about Ben actually. Um, but yeah, because he doesn't have any dialogue in that whole sequence, so it's all the more impressive what comes across. Yeah, exactly. So here's the um, quote Kirsty's talking about. Before, either someone who has the absence of hope and the thing that we state started with for who is Ben then is someone who has hope. There's no more ambiguity about what it is that he has to do. There's no more seesaw that's happening. For the first time, someone who has never had the answer now finally knows his purpose or destiny. He has to let her know that they're together. But I don't know that he is entirely sure of what's going to happen from there, nor do I think he cares. I think it's so long as he's with her, he's on the right path. And yeah, that's just beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's bittersweet, as is reflected in the movie, I guess, that this is the moment when everything comes together, when they're finally aligned, and he's comfortable being Ben again, and trying to make things right. Um, and he's on that path, and he's with her, but but then he's not, so... yeah. And it's weird because I feel like it just exemplifies the paradox of the movie because we're told that Ben Solo has hope and he sort of represents hope and then he's taken away. So it's like, well, how are we meant to be left feeling then if we've just killed this character who embodies hope like that? I genuinely don't think that the creators themselves see it the same way we do that's the mm. thing because they don't because they don't well, the closest we get is like we mentioned earlier Michelle Rojwan calling it a tragedy that we have him for such a little time but I don't think she's when she says tragedy I don't think she's talking about in universe as the story as tragic I think she's like oh it would have been nice to have more of him but we don't it's like this is a choice that you guys made as the storytellers <laughs> So if you wanted more Ben Solo, there was nothing stopping you. But I don't know. Again, like you say, like the movie itself, they just don't really go there in terms of really talking about the implications for that, for the character um, and for the Skywalkers as a whole, because we see it as a tragedy that all of the Skywalkers are dead by the end of this trilogy. Like if you step back and look at the choices that they made to, to tell the sequel trilogy in the first place, from the perspective of fans before The Force Awakens happened, we have the end of Return of the Jedi. Everything's wonderful. It's happy ever after. It's fairy tale. And you can kind of, whether you read the EU or not, you kind of just have this perception in your mind as they won the war. Luke is self-actualized. He's going to restart the Jedi or whatever. Han and Leia are a happy couple who maybe go on to have children. 
and then this is now the final end and it actually 30 years later they all die within a year of each other and their only son dies too <laughs> yeah I, I'm just not sure they understood the optics on that. <laughs> How do they not understand? <laughs> like, I, I, they must. That has to be the intent, because if you step back, it's like, that's what you did with these characters. You killed them all. And it it's not like that's an invalid choice. I would just like someone to acknowledge it and talk about it and explain why. Yeah. I think that's what bothers us, isn't it? It's the lack of commitment to those choices. I think that's why the Ray Skywalker thing is a thing. So it's like, okay, well, we killed the actual Skywalkers, but it's so that you have this new character who takes up that legacy. But that I, that works for some fans. I think a lot of fans have found a lot of meaning in that. And I did in terms of Ray coming into the fold and finding that family, but kind of with the understanding that at least one of them would still be alive for her to spend time with. Mm, yeah. Now it's like she has the name, but they're all gone. <laughs> yeah it's very strange and yeah like in the documentary there's no acknowledgement of what that naming means for ray herself like it is purely presented as this nostalgia driven moment and yeah it's not about that character having a new horizon it's purely about her serving as this sort of handmaiden to the Skywalker legacy. And yeah. while there's no one else left to dig that grave, Ray, better get started. It's hard to talk about Ray in an impartial way because people know that we really, really love this character and we had such hopes for the resolution of her heroine's journey. But there's very little said about Ray as a character in and of herself. Um you know, it's nice to see like Daisy interacting with Eunice and kind of giving us those anecdotes that almost sound like George Lucas references where she's like, oh, she's telling me to be more intense. Like that's obviously something that George used to say to the older actors and I'm guessing that's why they included it. But um, I think the other thing that we get is JJ talking about why they made Ray a Palpatine, which was pretty upsetting, honestly. Mm. Uh, yeah. But also validating in a sense that it's like finally you admitted that that was why it wasn't really about character development for Ray because it's not something that really challenges her in the movie. You could take it out and it wouldn't change anything for Ray's story. Yeah, let me read out that quote actually, just so okay. we have that context. The idea that she's so crazy powerful with the Force so quickly. For us, we always felt that there was a connection between her and something that would help explain some of these things. And yeah, I just, I hate it. I hate it so much. I just don't even understand because this is like, this is your character. You chose to tell her that way. You chose to make her that powerful from the beginning in The Force Awakens. And it always seemed clear to me, and I know it's been this huge thing in fandom, like, why is this character so powerful? There has to be a reason. But The Force Awakens itself, like her powers awaken in the interrogation scene as a result of interacting with Kylo in that way, it always... And even in the, the Last Jedi, you have Snoke saying, darkness rises and light to meet it, equal and the light would rise. I really thought that was explanation enough. And JJ saying that just kind of confirms that they were listening way too hard to fans who had issues with this female character having mm. physical strength. Yeah. It's really disappointing. It is. Yeah, but I'm glad that he admits that it's not really about 
Ray as a character. It's not her internal journey. They kind of try to link it to, oh, well, she's had this darkness that she's had to wrestle with since The Force Awakens, but it seems really weak sauce. Yeah. It makes it easier to ignore, I feel like, going forward. So it's like, yeah, that was a shitty decision. I'm just not going to think about that too much. I think, again, it just brings up this, you know, so many fans have responded to Rey because she has this traumatic past that she's not really fully acknowledging and wrestling with. When we meet her in The Force Awakens, she's kind of repressed a lot of stuff. She's trying to put on this happy face. And she meets this character who sees through all of that and challenges her and is also her foil. And then by making her a Palpatine, you kind of diminish why all of that conflict would be there in the first place. It's just kind of like, oh, it's because of who her granddad was. Mm. Despite her not knowing him or even she probably wasn't even aware of who Palpatine was. She didn't. She thought Luke was a myth when we met her in The Force Awakens. Um, So it just does away and minimizes a lot of why Rey was such a relatable character for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. And it's just like, why wasn't she good enough in her own right? Yeah. Because she was good enough in her own right to me, you know, and I loved her just for being Rey. You know, I didn't need her to have a special surname or, and I, I didn't need or want any explanations for how she was like she was. Like, I'm like a big big old nerd who loves Star Wars and books and movies and stuff. I, I don't feel like there's any particular like explanation for why I'm that way. It's just as how I am. And I feel like it's refreshing when you're allowed to have characters who are the way they are just because they are, you know, just because it's fate is how things turned out. And yeah, it just makes things feel more reductive to have to explain everything, especially in the most like, obvious pandering ways. I think the most frustrating thing as well is that Ray Palpatine could have been a really great story. It would have been a different story. If that had been the plan from the beginning, you could have had this really cool like blend of Anastasia and Romeo and Juliet, yeah. where she's like the secret granddaughter hidden in the desert and maybe she has these repressed memories or doesn't know at all but like goes on this journey of discovery and i think that's what they tried to shove in at the end and pretend that all the rest of it was about that but it's very clear that ryan's part of the story was about her learning that actually there isn't a legacy for her and she has to create that herself and that is a really positive takeaway for a lot of fans who don't have an an important family in air quotes or a supportive family or someone to lean on like it's it's it was supposed to be like the reverse of luke's story and mm. by doing the a weaker version of i am your grandfather it's like <laughs> what does that add I, I don't know yeah i know we're preaching to the choir here but <laughs> <laughs> like, we're, feel we're, rage. To, we're coming to terms with it yes it's it's just been disappointing and i and over the last few months, I have been like going through phases of being more okay with it than others. And not okay with it in terms of le- I'm learning to love that aspect of the story because I probably never will. But yeah. just kind of accepting that this part of the story wasn't for me. Yes. But then you talk about it again and it kind of reopens the wound. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Like a particular wounding part of it was um, Terrio saying, Leia's Jedi trial happens in episode nine. The end of her path as a Jedi is fulfilled when her son turns back to the light. Because Kirsty, I hate it 
I think Terry is saying that confirms that theory I presented in our like four hour yeah no I think you're right review of the Rise of Skywalker that Leia knew that Ben was going to die through her actions yeah and she made the choice to do what she did like because yeah she knew it was inevitable at that point and had to be done and I just hate it for so many reasons I feel like in some ways it almost takes the agency away from Ben himself as well for it takes the agency away from all of the characters like I think we've said this before this movie is kind of it really presents the force is this like crushing all-powerful thing that you can't escape like the force is really a curse yeah whereas when you watch the original trilogy the force and even the prequels like the force is presented as this really cool thing that you'd love to have because it connects it makes you feel connected to everything but this is like a connected crushing it's quite depressing and i don't know if that's their intent but that's how it feels to me yeah i don't <laughs> feel like it's, it i don't feel like it's intentional at all unfortunately um but the one thing that does give me hope is i think it creates really great opportunities for future storytelling because again i really want like a story in like 10 20 years time where ray has like reflected on everything and she's like hang on i was fucking screwed over <laughs> oh yeah the cake so this this is what a lot of fans are hoping for at this point mm. that you know in a future story whether she's physically re- reunited with ben whether he turns out to be in the world between worlds or whatever there's like an acknowledgement and that is the main thing for us there's an acknowledgement of what ray lost um we'll talk about the novelization eventually because it does Ray Carson, bless her. She really did her best in terms of filling in and kind of acknowledging what the film doesn't quite dare to. That Ray literally, she loses the other half of her soul. Because that's what they set up and then took away. Yeah. But of course, she then has to adhere to what the story presents and she's off to Tatooine and it's all good. <laughs> so, yeah. It's very disjointed and an emotional roller coaster of like a, a weird mix of acknowledgement and then whelp repression and i know star wars has done that to an extent over the years but as the resolution and especially for a character like ray who initially was kind of defined um by that story of like uncovering and acknowledging her trauma so that she can move on in a healthy way to see that almost regression by the end is quite devastating yeah because you really see her start to come to terms with that by the end of the last jedi where kylo and her are having that emotional scene where everything's kind of laid out and she's forced to reckon with it and then she goes on and she comes into her own power and she lifts those rocks and saves her friends because she's believing in herself it it kind of is undermined a little yeah yeah like i just really feel like future storytelling needs to treat the rise of skywalker exactly as the rise of skywalker treated the last jedi that's what's so hard because i'm not sure that I'm not sure what's going to happen with Lucasfilm because you've got this... I know we're getting off topic here. We're not focused on the documentary, but it's kind of like what the documentary raises for us. Um, There was an article that came out right after The Rise of Skywalker was was released. I think it was on Mashable. And the guy who wrote it was talking to Lucasfilm employees at the premiere and he didn't name them for obvious reasons, but he said he talked to a lot of people who work at Lucasfilm who had been really upset about the Ray Palpatine thing for months. Mm. So there are people at Lucasfilm, presumably involved in the storytelling side of things, although he didn't explicitly state that, who weren't happy with the direction the story went. Yeah. 
So I wonder what that means, if anything, for the future. Exactly. So we're already seeing a really interesting stuff in terms of the storytelling with these characters, like the um, Rise of Kylo Ren comic book, which is mm. really wonderful. And I'm really excited for us to talk about that, to be honest, because there's a lot to dig into. And I do think that takes stuff like this dyad concept with Rey and Kylo, and it does already start to seed really intriguing possibilities for how Lucasfilm might be treating that story-wise going forward and yeah. I find that sort of thing really promising and exciting so I do have hope for the future of Star Wars storytelling with these characters because regardless of the fact that Rise of Skywalker made less money and was obviously much less well liked than the prior movies like I think it goes without saying that it's the movies that where Star Wars is always going to make the most money and are always going to live the most in people's memories People mm-hmm. know the characters of Ray and Kylo and Finn and Poe. They're not going to completely discard them. They will be revisited at some point. And yeah, for me, the question mark is just how well will they be handled at that point? So obviously we'd feel like the way that their stories currently end is not well done. But And yeah, there's just this big open question about what, if anything, is going to happen with them in the future. Yeah, and you know that applies to other characters too in terms of whether you honour the choices that the Rise of Skywalker made. Um, like For Rose, for example, yeah. I loved seeing... I think we see more of Kelly in this documentary than we do in the movie. Um, yeah, and I, I had exactly treasured those for. moments and I loved seeing her and Billy's friendship. That was so touching. Oh my God, yes. That was so wonderful. Actually, I have a quote from Billy. Can I um, read that out? Oh yeah, yeah. It was actually a moment in the documentary that moved me, like, made me a bit teary. Um, It was just so lovely. She said, I got to do a scene with Kelly right now at the end of the movie where, kind of like my life, things have fallen apart a little bit, but we're still here. And it's important we're still here, even though we miss our loved ones. I love Kelly so much. And then Kelly comes up and they hug and, oh, it's just so wonderful and heartwarming. You know, it's the most lovely thing. And, Yeah. yeah, I think it does also make me appreciate more just those little moments you know like there are those background moments where you see conics and rose like supporting each other and you almost don't think twice about that watching that as a viewer you know so it's not really given priority by the filmmaking but it's really nice that billy would do that and have this really like emotionally rich like take on what's going on at that point because yeah. it would feel very personal because of the circumstances of her mum and stuff um yeah that just really got to me and oh my god Kirsty, i would love a spin-off of conics and rose <laughs> screw oh, everyone same. else just give them and a and janna yes just, yeah actually all three of them yeah that'd be great and maybe yeah. as little tree actually have ray hang out with girls her own age she could be oh. like a special guest star or something oh i don't know maybe that's going too far <laughs> <laughs> what would ray with other women <laughs> No, the rule, see, is that we have one female character and two male characters. (laughs) No, it was was a real strength of this documentary to see uh, Kelly and and Billy together. And however we feel about Leia's story in The Rise of Skywalker, I've always said this even before the movie came out, the most important thing was that Billy was happy with it and she honestly seems to be. Yeah, she really does. that's what matters most. Yeah. And like I... Like there's some um, this whole section explaining how they pulled off the stuff of Carrie and Leia, and I found that really interesting actually to see the process and see how they'd sort of like 
mat out the parts of the sc screen that weren't Leia, and then you'd see the old footage of Leia from The Force Awakens, and then you'd see these like bizarre like artists' renderings or photos, even still photos of like Kelly Marie Tran. And, yeah. Um, snap. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to think of what his Greg name was. Greg Grunberg. Greg Grunberg. Yes, JJ's yeah. friend. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's just really weird, but also really interesting. So I find those like awkward insights into behind the scenes stuff quite fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of, it kind of sums up the limitations that they were working with, and I think they really did their best. But that whole section about carrying Leia, it's lovely, but it is a little painful too. Obviously, and mm. um, it's clear that everyone involved like recognizes Leia's importance to the saga. You hear from Kathleen Kennedy and JJ and. You see Daisy getting emotional as she films a scene that's put together with Carrie's footage. And they were like clearly thrilled to have that footage from episode seven. I think even Michelle Rejwan points out that it's extra special that JJ was the one directing her there. Um, but they do kind of in inadvertently touch upon the biggest problem with those later scenes. Because I think there's a guy who comes in and says, you know, they admit that they had to write the script based on the lines that they had, which is obvious, like they would have to do that. But it's, it's really the key for me in terms of why those scenes don't quite work because it means that Ray's story and everything else related to that stuff with the Resistance and anything that's really connected to Leia in the movie, it's limited by the lines that they had from Carrie. And it means that Daisy's scenes with her deferred to the footage they had of Leia with the saber, the lines that were originally in a totally different context. Um, and unfortunately for me, it does kind of show it's not the worst thing in the world, but it definitely doesn't feel seamless. Yeah. I was going to say that bit that you talked about where they kind of storyboard that scene with Carrie, Kelly Marie Tran and Greg Grunberg. Like they have those pictures of them just kind of like set in against Carrie's performance from The Force Awakens. And a lot of that is kind of, we saw it in deleted scenes or behind the scenes stuff from The Force Awakens. Um when you have those sketches of Rose and Snap just like stood there not moving and not speaking, it kind of just sums it up because those scenes, they're not about the other characters. They're kind of just reacting to Leia. Yeah. And it means that everything is revolving around something that wasn't created for this purpose. So it's like, it's technically impressive and it's great that we have Leia there, but for the story, it's almost empty and it feels a bit directionless. Mm. One of the visual effects guys, I think he was called Patrick, he says that they're building the movie around her and it, it shows for me. Yeah. It's so hard. I think I've said it before that with the Carrie stuff, it's, it's almost like there weren't any good choices. Yeah. It feels horrible to just write her out, you know, and say, Leia died three months ago or something like that. It feels awful to recast her, which I think would have just created uproar. And... But also, it just doesn't really work using this old footage. And it's hard. You can mm. tell people tried so hard, you know. And I do think they did the best of what they had. It was just a really shitty situation. And yeah, like like you said, Kirsty, I think it's good that at least Billy was happy with it. Because mm. out of everyone on this planet, she's the person who most needed to be happy with it. And if she was, I, I feel like that's really good. Exactly. So... Yeah, that's that's like a, a good way for us to make our peace with it. Like, however we feel about the resolution of Leia's story, it's not anywhere near as important as how Billy feels about it. So, exactly, if she feels good, then that kind of allows me to make my peace with it. Yeah, 
on like a lighter note as we draw towards the end of this discussion there's this wonderful part where daisy is practicing going down on the sled down the sand dune yeah (laughs) is that a lighter note for you i know she's she's scared of it so (laughs) she's so nervous yeah. And there's this wonderful part where she calls out, I don't like it, Eunice! I defeated the Dark Lord! Isn't that enough? <laughs> and it's just so yeah. perfect. I just love that. And yeah, to be honest, yeah. I needed that at that point because there's another part there where she's like, oh, Eunice pointed out to me that this is how we meet Ray, where she's going down the sled on Jakku. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> sure is, Daisy. Sure yeah. is. <laughs> what do you think that says to us? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no. It was again, painful. obviously. I the, I don't have the quotes to hand, but I think it might be it's either Michelle Rajwan or Kathleen Kennedy. There's a woman there talking about how Star Wars is about the cycle of mentors and people coming into their own and kind of coming back to the beginning, coming full circle, etc. And of course, that's what we see in that final scene with Ray. Um, for me, that's pretty upsetting as the final scene for that story for her. But to them it's clearly what they wanted i just wish there was more explanation of why yeah no i think that's the thing you become you come sort of like tantalizingly close to answers in this documentary and you still don't get them (laughs) so it's really interesting in many ways but yeah it just it doesn't quite cut deep enough i think yeah and i don't think that's a limitation like that's intentional on the part of the filmmaker who made the documentary i'm sure that they like did the absolute best they could with the interviews they had and the footage they that was available to them um but yeah just naturally people are always going to dance around things and not directly say what was going on yeah and i i know that the movie itself kind of does this but i'm sort of fascinated by the <laughs> blatant prequels erasure like not a single reference to padme or shmi uh very little like we have the bit on vader which is mostly from um george actually they use old footage of george talking about the nature of good and evil and how he was fascinated by how people could do such terrible things um and come back from that but not really acknowledging anakin as a character it's more like vader as the parental figure for luke so very little prequels emphasis yeah there were like a few brief clips from the prequels towards the end but that's really the only prequel stuff that I noticed in the whole thing. Yeah, so that was a choice. <laughs> One of the parts of this documentary that I found the most egregious was how at the very end they show all this old footage from the 70s of the original cast and it's obviously got that like old style filmy aesthetic to it. And then they show like clearly doctored footage of the new movies and the new cast that's been edited in such a way to look exactly like that old footage from the 70s Mm. again it's just one of those cute things and it's just like i hate this it's purely aesthetic and it's all cute footage and nice footage but it's just so meaningless you know it's like you've made footage look like it's from the 70s but why what (laughs) it's like an instagram filter (laughs) yes they do that at the beginning actually when they show it's harrison ford alec guinness and um mark hamill and um they're they're all on the the falcon and i think it's like behind the scenes footage we've seen before where harrison fluffs his line and um peter may who's there as well and um 
And then they transition to the first day on set for this movie, and you see like uh, John and Oscar on on the Falcon. But for a second, you don't quite realize what you're seeing because, like you say, they're using that like old grainy f- filter on it. So I think it's like they're trying to connect the two and like they're trying to say something. I'm just not quite sure what. <laughs> There's another part actually that I've just remembered where they do it, but in a different way. So it's the scene, it's the part in the documentary where they have um, Donald Gleason constantly flubbing his lines. Oh, that was such a great part. We didn't talk about him. It's in amazing, <laughs> and we can talk about it now. So I know this discussion is all over the place, but it's sort of the nature of the documentary that. Yeah, it's kind of hard to not be all over the place. Oh yeah, I've just thought of something else that we haven't mentioned either, because like you say, it's <laughs> a strange structure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, this thing with Donald Gleason is just magical, basically, because he keeps on forgetting the dumb lines and saying them wrong, <laughs> and so he's just, like slipping from this like very authoritarian British accent into like his natural Irish accent, and he's like, "Oh, what's he called again?" <laughs> and JJ's like, "Elated General Pride." and oh it's just delightful but even that they couldn't let that stand on its own they had to then like refer back to like peter cushing (laughs) flubbing his lines in the original star wars it's like for fuck's sake do you not have enough confidence just in this like dumb jokiness without like making it see you see it's like the old films it's like the old things i think that is what sums it up that this is almost they're really like presenting it in a way to most appeal to older fans where the original trilogy is their primary reference point and it means that like young fans who got into the story because of these new characters they'll be watching this and like wait what why why would i care about that uh i don't think they even realize no it's like they didn't even consider that they would have new fans where this was their focus and even for people like us who have like been Star Wars fans since we were kids, we're in our 30s now, but like we were interested in this sequel trilogy for these characters. Um, they just It's clear that they didn't have enough confidence and belief in that. It's a real shame. Oh, another thing I want to talk about was <laughs> the point where they're trying to decide on like what the MacGuffin is going to be. Oh, so I'm they not have... sure I remember this. Talk me through so, it. So, well it's the part where they decide to use the knife okay the dagger so jj is like holding that up but they've also got other stuff on the table there so chris terrio is like looking at these like ancient looking scrolls and stuff like whatever it would be in the story once they get to pasana to like figure out what happened with ochi and that but and i guess eventually find their way to kefbir and the death star but it really kind of shows because they're clearly like in the middle of filming and they're deciding on set which prop to use like it's clear that the script has been written for a decent chunk of time now and then they're trying to slot in whatever the MacGuffin will be for this part of the story and again it's something that like was revealing but in a way that kind of allowed me to make peace of it because I'm like oh that's why that stuff doesn't make sense to me (laughs) because it didn't make sense to them yeah (laughs) they're like trying to decide on the spot and you can see JJ like he's holding up the dagger and he does the thing that we see Radu in the movie where she lines it up with the Death Star. And he's like, I don't know if he's even consciously being like, hey, I saw this really cool thing in one of my favorite movies as a kid, The Goonies. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's what you're doing. Oh my um, God. It almost, I don't, they don't get it, obviously. This is not how the people working on the movie. And I, I don't want it to seem mean spirited, but like, the dagger has been like a main source of almost mockery from critics and fans who didn't like the movie 
that it's like such a ridiculous there's there's such an emphasis on the various MacGuffins in this movie to the point where like the characters are really like taking a step back and it's more about this relentless fast-paced plot where they have to get this thing and then this thing and then go to this planet and this planet and this moment in the documentary just kind of sums it up where like JJ's picking this thing up and then deciding what they're going to do with it and put that in the movie but it's like again why what does this add to the story oh my god I honestly don't remember that part of the documentary at all I think I must have just suppressed that well there's so so much again like the movie itself it moves from thing to thing and there's not like there's not a sense of weight to it because there's so much packed into this story and it's hard to like focus on things because everything is given almost an equal weight um there's another part where i I really enjoyed seeing victoria mahoney actually um she's in the desert and they're filming a little bit that connects when they first get to Basana. You know, you see those little, like, creatures. Yes, I do remember this part. Yeah. And it's really cool. See, like, I get I'm so impressed with the work that they do on these things. And, like, you can, like, see their eyes moving and stuff. Um, but in the actual final shot that they do, you don't see them from the front. You only see them from the back as they're, like, flying into Basana. Mm. And I know it's the reality of it. Like, there must have been so many things that got cut from the final story. But it just kind of, I don't know, emphasized that for me. But that's going to be true of all movies. There's always going to be this work that goes on that isn't then recognized in the final story. But I feel like that's especially true for this one. Yes. Because we know there there were so many creatures and so many sets and plot points that got shifted around and then removed entirely. Yeah. I do feel like the movie was constantly being shuffled around. And I guess it was just because everything was so rushed. Because in... In film production times, he came in really late. And yeah, I really just think the whole thing was a rush job, to be honest. Yeah, and that must mean that to an extent this documentary was also because they must have filmed a ton of stuff and then had to decide after the movie was like, okay, this is it finalised, this is the story. Yeah. They would then have to remove everything else, you know? Yeah. And try and try and shape this documentary around that. And I, there are still some things in here that don't line up with with the actual final story i don't know if we mentioned earlier but the stuff with terrio talking about palpatine being aware of the dyad it's like yeah he wasn't (laughs) yeah and poor john talking about the stormtrooper rebellion that definitely did not happen that kind of broke my heart because that was something he says it and it's reflective of what a lot of fans wanted he's he says that was something that i wanted for this character since the force awakens the stormtrooper rebellion i think as what we got in the final story, I think he's talking about the fact that he's with that company of rebellious, re- you know, defected stormtroopers, Janna and her friends, mm. um, that they're going against the other stormtroopers. Right. Okay. But to me, that's not a rebellion because they're not they're not going to anyone more authoritative than other stormtroopers, and they're killing them. So, I don't know. I guess you could call that a rebellion, but it doesn't feel like one. It's certainly not given the weight it deserves in the movie. Yeah, I was just confused by that. I think you might be right, though. I I could see that being what he was referring to. But yeah, if that counts as a rebellion, it's like, oh dear. (laughs) Yeah, and again, it might be that there was more stuff filmed there and then it just got cut. I mean, isn't there also a rumour that um, the other characters were supposed to be at some point, they were going to be on Tatooine with Rey? You mean like um, Finn, Jana, and Poe? 
Yeah. Yeah, there was that rumour. Yeah. Is Rose not even a part of that rumour? No. Oh my, okay. I know. Wow. It's so incredibly she, but <laughs> who's surprised at this point? So. Oh. Yeah. I, actually, I am surprised by that. They couldn't even have her there. Mm. Like, are you serious? Yeah. I know. It's mm. a fucking disgrace. Okay. To be I know people are probably tired of me talking about Rose, but I, I don't think I'm ever going to get over this. So just fair warning. If you listen to Scavengers Horde regularly, just know <laughs> that I will be forever <laughs> bitter about this. I don't know how to get over it. No, it's righteous bitterness. People should be bitter. It just, it seems so cruel. Yeah. So. It's really horrible. What we were talking about earlier in terms of future storytelling, and there's a there's an IDW comic coming out that's set between The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker, and it's like a mission with Rey, Finn, and Poe. Um, and again, I'm like, where's Rose? So when we were talking earlier about like Lucasfilm having to honour the rise of skywalker in terms of not just its plot points but what it chooses to elevate and what it chooses to erase Mm. um it chooses to erase rose as one of the core characters and i know we still have her in the last jedi but i'm just curious to see going forward if they're going to choose to tell stories about her or if she is kind of kind of drop off the map Mm. yeah i really hope they do right i i usually feel like rose she's had a a decent shot in like the like expanded stuff like we did get the um cobalt cobalt squadron is that right the one with her and her yeah sister? but that was all stuff that came out around the last jedi yeah you're right so yeah i guess it remains to be seen then doesn't it as to how it's going to look for rose going forward but i'd want to have enough faith in lucasfilm that they'll do rose justice well i i don't that's the thing jj had no interest in doing rose justice and yeah, I think the real test is well now JJ's obviously out of the picture at Lucasfilm. What is the rest of Lucasfilm gonna do, like with these characters? How are they gonna try and do them justice? How do they prioritize what stories they're going to tell? You know, and I think the next years are gonna illustrate that. I can't really believe at this point that Kathleen Kennedy cared because surely she should have been able to step in and say, what are you doing? She's a main character. Yeah. So, I don't know. I know there are rumours swirling about what was going on in terms of whether JJ was working closely with Bob Iger as opposed to Kathleen Kennedy, but we see Kathleen Kennedy in this documentary talking about the movie and the story choices and being excited about it, so... If that's all I have to go on, I have to think that she was kind of on board with yeah. the treatment of Rose, which is really upsetting. Yeah. It's really shitty. And yeah, it's especially poignant because some of the best stuff in this documentary is the stuff of Kelly Marie Tran. <gasps> like, there's oh. the most amazing, like, shots of her practicing the hug with Chewbacca. Yes! Yeah! Where Kelly runs into Junus's arms. And yeah, it's just the most wholesome thing you'll see, especially because Lil Manuel Miranda is just next to them, like clapping, and then she hugs him, and oh, it just looks so glorious. Yeah, that's one of my favorite little moments from the movie. So I'm glad to get like a different version of it. And it just in general, it was cool to get like alternate perspectives on the scenes that were filmed, and almost some of them I actually almost preferred the way they looked in this documentary versus the final version. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of the footage they had of um, Billy kind of standing in for the young Leia yes. in the, the fight scene between Luke and Leia. The way that they slow that down, they did slow motion and you see that fight from different angles and they explain how they took like the visuals from um, Mark and Carrie's performances from the younger films. The 
sorry, the older films. Um, I just, I appreciated that more because it gave me, it, it allowed it to kind of breathe a bit more. In the movie, it flashes by so quickly and you've got Luke talking to Rey about Leia's vision and why she stopped being a Jedi and how Rey has to continue on that path for her. There's way too much going on, so I can't even really focus on it. But in this documentary, I was like, wow, that looks really beautiful with like their sabers in the dark and fighting through the jungle. Yeah, it looks awesome. I think yeah. I have it in my notes that like seeing that behind the scenes footage, it almost made me wish that they just kept Billy's face, to be honest. Yeah. Rather than like could've. having the creepy CGI layer. I understand why they wouldn't, because obviously they also have conics. So then it's like the same face for two different characters. Um, but it would have looked much better than what they did, to be honest. And I don't mean any like ill will towards the artists who rendered that face because they clearly did their best. But it just looks wrong and not good. So Yeah, I think Billy looks enough like Carrie that they could have got away with that. Yeah. Just keep it more in shadow, have good makeup and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, it's a pity. Yeah, was there anything else? Well, there's lots of things because obviously yeah. it's a really long documentary, but um, yeah. I have lots of notes, but it is we've had a disjointed discussion about it because the documentary itself just kind of joint, it, it jumps from point to point. Mm, yeah. um, so I'm sure like in future discussions, we'll reference stuff that's talked about and shown here. Yeah. Exactly, especially those quotes from Daisy and Adam about their characters and their journeys, because there's some really great stuff there that, yeah, will be good to talk about more. Um, but yeah, we obviously don't want to talk, have a discussion about the documentary that's longer than the do- documentary. Yeah. <laughs> it creates a sort of like inception-like feedback loop. <laughs> yeah, it just wouldn't be good. I'm assuming that most people who are listening to this have watched the documentary at this point, so hopefully you enjoyed it like i know we've had a lot of negative things to say but it's kind of because as you all know we don't really like the movie that much and the documentary of course is charting that story um but there are definitely little moments to enjoy and i hope we've highlighted some of those um i've got i forgot to mention kathleen kennedy hugging claude oh god yes it was so good i love that (laughs) Like I wish Cla- I could hug Claude. Claude honestly looked so much better in the behind the scenes <laughs> he than did. he did in the film. It was really w- odd. I was like, did <laughs> I think they do because... something to him? But like, it looks like he's been vandalized in the film. <laughs> he got like better angles, like they were able to step back a little. Whereas in the movie, <laughs> I don't. I think especially when he's like crammed onto the Falcon, there's like no space. He's like, I, that's partly the point, I guess. But like. Oh, Claude, they didn't do you justice. Yeah. I, I love us talking about like better angles for like a slug, <laughs> like he's a fashion model or something. It's like, you darling, turn to the right. It's like, I think it's oh, like, you look it's nice seeing, I think John Boyega's there with him as well and just like marvelling at him because it's amazing what they can do. Like the, the creature work is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it just goes to show how much of the e- execution of the creatures and how good they look. It's in large part informed by like the camera work and how they're filmed yeah. like you don't necessarily get a sense for how incredible the puppets are just from seeing them in the film which yeah, yeah reinforces my conviction that we need an exhibition so hopefully one day yeah I, I, I also loved seeing more of the puppets and the the people in kind of like the costumes for the Yaki Yaki on Fasana and the, the puppeteering work they were, go, they were doing for like the babies um, like the people were hanging out underneath the surface of the sand and working on them and 
it was kind of cool to see people puppeteering for these creatures watching a puppet show. Yeah. But, oh, 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 God, there was a part there. We need to talk about this. Sorry, I know this is like really disjointed. No, don't worry, it's fine. There's a part there where they're talking about why they showed this stuff to Ray. And I don't have the exact quote, but it's something like, Ray's been denied joy and pleasure in her life, so we really wanted her to see that. Yeah. Oh, God, that <laughs> hurt. That hurts so much hearing that, Kirsty. It's like, okay, so you got to that level, but then you didn't deliver... Like, you wanted her to see it, but did you want her to experience it for herself? Not just observing other people living full lives, surrounded by loved ones. She could have a tiny taste of happiness, Kirsty, just as a special treat. She couldn't have it to hold on to, though. That's far too much. And again, uh, as with so many things, it kind of did sum up my issues with the story because it's like you get so close and yet you're so far and i know for lots of fans it's enough that you get her hugging her friends on the resistance planet and then she leaves to tatooine we know she's not there forever that's not the point it's that that is the final scene and yes we might know that she's gonna fly away again and be reunited with her friends but it's just not like the mood that that gives us mm. And it's just such a contrast with this lively, colourful celebration that she's observing and kind of walking through and smiling and enjoying. And I just think that Ray deserved so much more. Yeah. No, Ray was massively, massively screwed over in her own story, which, yeah, I think is why it hurts so much. I don't think that they recognise that. Mm, yeah. I feel bad, Kirsty. Sorry. I know that this has opened up old wounds. No, I mean... I, it's just been this endless cycle since December. I'm sure <laughs> lots of listeners relate. Yeah, no, um, exactly. You've got to yeah. work through that pain, haven't you? <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So, the, like the movie, the documentary is a mixed bag of cute, fun stuff that's heartwarming and then turns on a dime with a, a quote from Terrio or someone else <laughs> that's immediately like, why? <laughs> Why would you do that? Oh my god. Yeah, the Terrio quotes were usually what got me. I think yesterday I was like, yeah, I'm going to stop here for today. <laughs> and it was probably at a Terrio quote. Because <laughs> I was like, look, I've got nothing against him as a person. I'm sure he's a nice guy. Like, best of luck to him. But um, yeah, just I, I don't like his thought processes. Yeah. No, that's the thing. I've got no ill will against any of these people. Like they're doing their job and I truly believe him when he comes at the beginning he's like I'm coming into this as a fan first and foremost. I have really high expectations. I want it to be great. I believe him and I hope that he's happy with the product. You know, I hope he's happy with what he did. Yeah. I'm not, but that doesn't matter to him. So, yeah. <laughs> like as long as someone gets joy out of it, then that's something. <laughs> Well, I know I know that lots of other fans enjoy this, so... Of course, yeah. You know, it can't be for everyone, so... Yeah. If you listen to all of this and you love the movie, like, more power to you, like, and I'm really glad oh, you liked it. Yeah. I, I would be interested to know at this point, actually, if we still have listeners who love the movie and must have been hoping that we would too, and then turns out we didn't, and... I hope we haven't alienated too many people. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, write in, like, if you love the movie, like, we would love to hear from you, like, and you can email us at any time at scavengersward at gmail.com so we'd be really interested and yeah we can read out the email and have a little chat about it um 
Yeah, and just one thing, Kirsty, before we go into the listeners' question that we do have, is um, there's actually a new interview that's been released with Eunice, and she has some cute comments to say, and I just thought this would be the perfect time to read out the headline comment from that. Okay. Um, so she said, When actors say they want to do their own stunts, which they all say, some of them just aren't capable. Adam was so capable. He'd just go and move. I kept telling him he needs to do a full action movie. He's got to do it because he's so brilliant and he's slightly awkward. So everything looks slightly different, even though he's doing the same things that everyone else is doing. He has this nature of his body that it just looks slightly different. So it feels like you're looking at something you haven't seen before. He really should do an action film. I agree, Eunice. I think that'd be great. I totally agree with her. He's got a very distinctive physicality. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. I mean, he's obviously acting too, so it, it changes from role to role. But just Adam as himself, when you like see him in footage or he's out on some press event or an interview or whatever, he you can you can tell it's Adam. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So. No, exactly. If you just saw that silhouette, you'd be like, Adam Driver! <laughs> and yeah, it's great. It's actually a really good interview. It's on um, comic book resources and she goes into like quite a lot of detail about the water fight and all the character stuff and the emotional beats. So yeah, it's, well, okay. it's definitely well yeah. worth checking out. Oh well, yeah, we didn't cover that in our discussion, but there is a lot of great footage from them filming that fight. And I think Adam's talking about it at some point it was filmed in November and one of the days they were working was his birthday. Yes. And Daisy looks so cold and uncomfortable because yeah. they're pouring freezing water over these poor actors, but they're really giving it all. And um, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's definitely, it's a highlight for the movie for me. Yeah. No, it's really Good lovely. Yeah. No, so it's definitely a really interesting documentary and I'd honestly recommend it to people even if they didn't like the movie. So I think it, in a way it might help you make peace with it more, you know, and yeah. understand why certain choices were made. And yeah, if nothing else, it has lots of really great behind the scenes footage of lovely actors be, having fun and being goofy and yeah. So check it out. Mm-hmm. Cool, so then we're just going to finish off with a quick listener question. So the question came in to us via email, and if you have a question for us, you can obviously reach out to us at scavengershorde at gmail.com. So this is from Mariana Costa. Hi, Rachel and Kirsty. My name is Mariana, and I'm a long-time listener. You're my favourite Star Wars podcast because there's a perfect balance of news, analysis, and light-hearted moments, and I appreciate how thorough and methodical you two are, which makes every episode an enriching experience. Thank you very much. That's really nice. What prompted this email was the brief discussion you had in the episode about all the kisses in the Star Wars films. You talked about the same sex kiss that happened in The Rise of Skywalker and how it's too little too late in terms of representation. I definitely agree, and it's a heavily debated topic in other podcasts I listen to. Which brings me to my question. The Last Jedi is by far my favourite film out of the sequel trilogy, and I like Ryan Johnson as a filmmaker in general, but I couldn't help thinking about what he said in an interview when someone asked him why there was no LGBTQ representation in The Last Jedi. He said, sexuality in general is not something that's front of mind in any of these movies. How do you reconcile this with his claims that the hand touch between Rey and Kylo was the closest thing to a sex scene in Star Wars? Does he not see the double standard? He is often praised by us Raylos for bringing female desire to the forefront in The Last Jedi, so it's not like he's unable to portray different points of view as a straight man. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Have a lovely week. Oh, such a nice email. Thank you. 
Yeah, it's a really great question. And I'd say that I, I don't reconcile it with those claims because uh, I'm... <laughs> I, I don't know if we mentioned this interview at the time, but I remember it when it came out and it was really disappointing. Mm. And I'm always going to be up for taking people to task on their blind spots. And and as much as I love Ryan as a filmmaker and I love his work, I do consider this a blind spot. Um, And I, (laughs) unfortunately, I think there's an example of this kind of comment or at least one of these choices from every single Star Wars Disney film that we have so far. Um, Because of course with Solo, we got the comments about Lando being pansexual and then it turns out that's not really something that's reflected in the movie. It's kind of just put down to his relationship with a droid, which almost kind of reduces it to a joke. Um, But yeah, I do think, uh, as we said, like this isn't like a an issue that's limited to the rise of Skywalker, which did the most in terms of on-screen queer representation in Star Wars so far. Um, it's the, it's it's an issue with Star Wars and Disney in general, like very much Disney in general. Like they are really, really reluctant to make progress on this for whatever reason. Yeah. There's lots of baby steps in Disney yeah. films when it comes to representation. Like the last film I watched in the cinema for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, was um, Pixar's Onward. And there is a like character in that who refers to her, her girlfriend. Um, and th- again, I feel like this happens every fucking time. And there's always the most ridiculous controversy and like certain countries like boycotting the movie because yeah, there's a character who says she has a girlfriend which is so like dis- immensely disappointing in the 21st century. But I feel like it's only the tiniest gestures towards representation that they ever dare to do. And yeah, it is disappointing. And I feel like it's a cultural problem, not even just with Disney and Star Wars, to be honest, but with almost every studio that's pumping out big budget blockbuster type movies. Like it just seems like there's a, extensive cowardice to be honest um and yeah people are really reluctant to make bold demonstrations yeah and it's frustrating when you see like such simple changes that could be made to address it like Mm. with rogue one for example i came out of that thinking that shira and bays could very easily have been a couple yeah you wouldn't have had to do too much because the bond and the emotion was there you could have just shown a little bit more Mm. um Again, I mentioned pansexual Lando earlier, but Amalyn Holdo as well has been confirmed as a queer character in the books written by Claudia Gray. But in the movie, there's no evidence of that. And they very easily could have put something in because it turns out they they chose to have Commander Daisy written as a gay character in The Rise of Skywalker. They could have done that with her and Amalyn in The Last Jedi. Do you know what I mean? So like they, they make these choices and just as... I love Ryan, I love The Last Jedi, but I'm not going to pretend that it's not an issue in his film just because I like that film, you know? Sure, Like, yeah. it is. And uh, I think all of these filmmakers, I think they are put in a tight spot. Like, I do believe JJ when he says he wants queer representation, but at the end of the day, that's not entirely their choice. And mm. I'm assuming that if they wanted to do that, um, someone like Bob Iger or whoever the new guy is, the new Bob, uh, would step in yeah. and say, no, um, our, our audience is not ready for that. So, I'd say that it's also connected to this like wider 
understanding of what Star Wars is that seems to prevail at Lucasfilm. So I think it might be Michelle Rejwan or Kathleen Kennedy in the documentary. And they're listing off a series of tributes that Star Wars has and how it's about mentorship and being a hero and all this sort of stuff. And like love and romance like don't enter into that list of ingredients of Star Wars, even though they're quite important ingredients for us in terms of our understanding of the franchise and the story. And that's just like by default, unfortunately, in these situations that usually means heterosexual romance and if heterosexual romance is like almost treated as an afterthought, then wider representation it stands even less for hope of getting a shoe in, unfortunately, and it really sucks. And yeah, <laughs> I want to see change. Yeah, something that also bothers me, and coming back to like Ryan's comment, because as she notes, like he's talking about how sexuality in general is not something that's at the forefront of my mind. But at the same time, he said that about Rey and Kylo, and you can clearly see that within the dynamic that evolves across the movie. Like, you see Kylo shirtless, for God's sake. Um, and Rey sees him like that. And it's important. And I think something that really bothers me, and I'm sure bothers other queer fans, is that queer romance is inherently sexualized in a way that straight romances don't tend to be. It's like, mm. oh, this is a love story, but if you put something in between queer people, that's overtly sexual and that's a bad thing and we can't have kids looking at that mm. and it doesn't have to be you could literally just have people showing affection for each other it doesn't have to be sexual it can just be that they're together yeah um and that's what's frustrating because it's like aut automatically considered this like adult content or something like ridiculously offensive like that and it's just not the case yeah like, we just want we just want to be seen yeah which is why when there is representation it tends to be the most like lukewarm representation in terms of oh yeah my husband and there's a man saying it <laughs> it's like oh wow well done disney marvel great job yeah yeah so i hope i'm you know when we talked about that kiss in the rise of skywalker i'm sure we did say something to the effect of it being too little too late because it is you know that movie came out in 2019 come on can we please make some genuine progress but it was progress in a technical sense. Like, we got that in a Star Wars movie and we hadn't had it before. So it's definitely something that, you know, I'm not going to say that's not a good thing. It's just not enough. We want more. Yeah. So, yeah, that's not a slight against JJ. It's just... It's just frustrating. Yeah. No, so I feel like this is an episode filled with frustrations in <laughs> many different regards. Yeah, but hope for the future. Like, I, yes. I know I've said in previous episodes, like, overall, I'm kind of not too optimistic at the moment about the future of Star Wars in terms of, like, what they're going to do with these characters and what Star Wars is going to look like in the next few years. I want to be optimistic. Mm. So, like, if they can show me something that really... And I'm not even talking about, like, retconning. Again, like, kind of how we were talking about earlier, in terms of the technicalities of retconning the plot. I don't need them to retcon the plot of The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. I need them to, like, just show that that's not all Star Wars is for them. Like, I want it to be more. I want it to mean more. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel like I'm about to contradict myself because I know I said that I want to see future Star Wars sort of 
treat the Rise of Skywalker as the Rise of Skywalker treated The Last Jedi, which would basically involve jettisoning big parts of the Rise of Skywalker. But I'm almost in this like awkward situation where I kind of want that, but I also want it to really honestly tackle everything that the Rise of Skywalker did and try to make it right in the right way. But you did kind of say that earlier in terms of like acknowledging the tragedy for Rey and her story. Yeah. That could be really cathartic and meaningful. Just like as Rey Carson does in the novelization, it's like just acknowledge that half of her got ripped away and that's not a good thing. Yeah, exactly. It's not even about having Ben back, to be honest. Obviously in an ideal world, I'd love Ben to come back. But I don't necessarily need that. I just need to feel what that means. Because that's what the Rise of Skywalker doesn't give. Yeah. And I I understand their choices to an extent, as frustrating as I find them. They really did put themselves in a tight spot between like trying to tell this story for these characters, but then also putting this pressure on themselves to like wrap up this nine part saga. Like they they did not need to do that and they tried to, and I just don't think it was it was entirely successful. But. Yeah. <laughs> anyone who's still listening to us rant about this movie <laughs> grumble 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 <laughs> suffice we'll to say get over it eventually I promise yeah I promise to suffice to say I'm really excited for when um, my delivery to Kirsty arrives for her so we can finally talk about <gasps> oh, the rise yeah. of Kylo Ren because yes. I'm really excited to talk about a Star Wars thing that I just unreservedly love because yeah I unreservedly love that comic, so it'll be yeah. a really fun discussion. Yeah, they've done an amazing job there. And I think some of the reactions to it, not to get like spoilery in case people haven't read it yet, but um, I think some of the frustration has been around, for some fans, has been like the disconnected feeling between a lot of other sequel trilogy stuff and then the choices that were made in The Rise of Skywalker. Mm. I'd be really interested to hear from Charles Saul on what he knew, if anything, about the Rise of Skywalker and how he feels this part of Kylo's arc, or Ben's arc, fits in with the choices that were made in the Rise of Skywalker. Mm. Um, yeah. Because, yeah. I don't know. We'll get to that discussion when we do talk about the comic, but it's interesting. Exactly. Yeah, that's going to be a really interesting question to consider. Um, okay, cool. So I think it's time to wrap up the show. So I'm Rachel and you can find me on Stars Nonsense on Tumblr. I'm Kirsty and you can find me at Bastila Bay on Tumblr. And you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>